Well, it is time for the Word of God. If you guys can grab those Bibles, go ahead and run over to 1 Peter. We are back in 1 Peter. We've, we've taken a, a slight detour for the last couple of weeks out of 1 Peter um, and really spent some time in the Psalms. We were in Psalms 23 a few weeks ago, and then last week we had a guest preacher. How many of you guys enjoyed Pastor Watson Jones? Amen. He was with us, and he was in Psalms chapter 8. If you did not catch that message, why don't you go ahead and... Um, Take a listen to the podcast. It's on our website. If you guys have the app downloaded, go ahead and get it there as well. It was an awesome message, really reminding us uh, to look up is what he was talking about. But today we are back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a book that we've committed to go through all of 1 Peter. And when I say all of 1 Peter, let me just define it. That means every single verse. We don't skip anything uh, because we think that the word of God really should govern our conversations, should govern where we go. Uh, We do topical here as well, meaning we'll pick different topics and we'll preach on different topics, but we feel most comfortable as a church just walking through a book of the Bible. And so we will be in 1 Peter today. Um, We're making some good strides today. I'm going to try to knock off a couple of verses today. All right, why don't you guys pick me up in verse number 11? We'll do 11 to 17 today. All right, 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles. Circle this word. It's going to become very important. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject For the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Our last verse, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. I simply want to preach today in our short amount of time together. I want to preach from a topic entitled, Stop Trying to Fit In. Stop Trying to Fit In. Let us pray. Y'all said, mmm, like y'all was eating something good. We can say amen and go home right there then. Amen. Let us pray to the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning, and we confess that there um, are times in our life where we do try to fit in. And we try to fit into the, to the point where even if we know it's not your will, just because we want to be accepted by the world and accepted by people and accepted by our friends, we'll, do, we'll go to some outrageous lengths just to fit in. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us today. And through Peter, would you speak to us and encourage our wandering hearts? Father, like a GPS system, would you redirect us back to your will? Your will is to be tied into you so tightly that we're tied into your body. Help us to realize what that looks like. But the reality is, Lord, we are still in this world. You did not save us and then swoop us to heaven. But you saved us and you kept us in this world. How should we operate in this world? Well, help us to realize that fitting in isn't it. Help us to really hold truth to what your word says. Help us to walk out of this room and be doers of your word, not hearers only. It's easy for us to write notes down, write in our journals, but walk out and do nothing. But I pray that we would write this word on our heart. Not my words, but Peter's words. Write them on our hearts. And as my grandmother would say, would we put shoe leather to it today? 
And would we walk out the word? It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. Amen. Earlier this week, I jumped on a fight, flight and ran to Kentucky, last minute uh, trip, ran to Kentucky to one of our management team members. His wife passed away. And I went to Kentucky. What I thought I was going for was a funeral, but it was actually a visitation. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a visitation. I'm, fam- I'm familiar with a funeral. I'm familiar with a burial. I'm familiar with a wake. I'm familiar with any of those. I'm familiar with all of those things. I am not familiar with a visitation. So because I wasn't familiar with the visitation, I also wasn't familiar with the attire for the occasion. What was I supposed to wear? I didn't know. So I called up some friends and asked them, what was I supposed to wear? I didn't want to be too formal if I was supposed to be more casual. And likewise, I didn't want to be too too, uh, casual if I was supposed to be more formal. So I called some friends and asked them, what was I supposed to wear? And all of us in this room have had that one experience where you walked into a room and thought you were dapper. Is that a good word? Maybe not. You walked into the room and thought you looked nice. And when you got into the room, you realized that you were actually dressed down with your cut up jeans and everybody else was dressed up. You've also walked into a room where you were just way too dressed up and everybody else was dressed down. And all of us, when we're in that situation, we have that feeling of I don't fit in. Peter's going to show us this morning that that I don't fit in feeling actually is a normal part of the Christian life. What you feel when you walk in is what you should always feel. How should we operate, though? Peter's going to give us, he's going to give us some good practical, not even like deep theological stuff. He's going to give us practical ways, really two practical ways in which we should operate into this world. Truth of the matter is, many of you try to fit into this world like a a puzzle piece and, and a really difficult puzzle However, that feeling that you have of, man, I never, no matter where I go, I just kind of, no one ever gets me. I just never fit in. That is the Lord really turning our hearts to the fact that you fit in best amongst him, amongst his people. However, that doesn't mean that you are, you are greater than anybody else in the world. That just means that you just don't, you don't have the same desires they have. You don't have the same affections they have. When you meet Jesus, nobody meets Jesus and stays the same. We meet Jesus and our affections are changed. What we used to like, we just don't like no more. What we used to desire, we just don't desire anymore. And Peter's going to say, that's how we should operate. Why don't you guys pick me back up in verse number 11 so we can gain these principles that Peter's going to give. Verse number 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Let me lift back up the first Four words, beloved, I urge you. This is important that that the Apostle Paul is urging us here. Why is this important? Because this is the Apostle Peter, I'm not Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. He doesn't have to urge us anything. He could command us to do it, but he doesn't command us. And please understand something about the early epistles. The epistles in the early church would have been seen as authoritative based on the apostolic position that the writer has. Peter has apostolic rights to command as the Lord would say. Let me prove that to you in 1 Corinthians. Peter, uh, Paul writes, verse 14, verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or thinks he is spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
Paul was basically saying in 1 Corinthians that the same weight that you hold on the Old Testament, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the same weight that that holds in the Jewish household is the same weight that what I'm writing to you should hold. It's on par, and it would have been accepted by the early church as authoritative. And so Peter writing this letter, I was baffled when I read it and saw that he said, beloved, I urge you. Like, you're Peter. First of all, not just are you Peter, but you're Peter that Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm building my church. You were apostle before Paul was an apostle. And Paul says, listen, what I'm writing to you is a command. Yes, surely what Peter is writing to to us should be a command, but just like a a gracious apostle, he doesn't command them. He uses words like beloved, and then he goes so far as to say, I urge you. Basically, as a friend, he he is trying to rally some support around what he is about to say. So after he gets their attention, says, beloved, I urge you, he calls them two names. And at first glance, both names seem to be the same thing until you do further research on both names. Look back at the text. It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, two different things. Really the same thing is he's, he's saying the same thing, but there's two different meanings. A sojourner is someone who would have stayed. He's not a resident. He wasn't born there, but he's a, he's a long-term um, resident, if you will. He, he wasn't born there. That's not his place of birth. It's not the place that he's supposed to be. It's a place that he stayed for a long time. An exile is different. On the contrary, an exile is somebody that's passing through. An exile is somebody that's traveling along a road, finds hospitality somewhere at someone's house, stays for the night, stays for a couple nights, and then keeps moving. But even though these names have two different meanings, a sojourner and an exile, Peter is saying the same thing to us. He's suggesting by giving them both uh, different names that neither one of these, whether you've been on this earth for a long time or whether you just got here, both of you don't belong here. Remember, it's what what, uh, the writer says in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, but you are but dust. You are passing through. This is not your home. You should not be stocking up. You are sojourners. You are exiles. Basically put, you should not fit in here. But Peter also brings up for us a very, very important aspect or a concept that I want you guys to to just, just hear this. He does not suggest in this passage that Christians should be isolated from culture. To the contrary, notice he's giving us principles on how to live in the culture. That doesn't mean that you should be a hermit. That doesn't mean you should be in your room reading your Bible 24-7 and never get out into the world. If that was the case, why would Peter give us principles on how to live in the world? He is not saying abstain from the world. He's saying abstain from sinful passions in the world, but he's not saying abstain from the world. He's giving us the opposite. And our our, our aim to engage and change the culture really works best with you living faithfully in the culture. Not with you being isolated from it. Earlier uh, last week, I went to a BBD concert. I know y'all young people don't know nothing about BBD. Y'all went to all this trap music. You know, I don't get trap music anyway. It's the same beat, just a bunch of different words. But however, we went to a BBD concert, which is Bell Biv DeVoe for you, those of you who do not know. Y'all, y'all don't know nothing about it. Y'all say, yeah, y'all don't know nothing about Bell Biv DeVoe. Okay, maybe y'all do. All right. <laughs> Well, we, some of y'all young people don't, I could tell. That's a good 80s and 90s music. 
Anyway, so we went to this BBD concert. And when we went to this concert, there was really two reasons why we went. Of course, we went just to enjoy the show. I grew up on BBD, so Ty and I wanted to enjoy the show. But the second reason we went was because we wanted to support a young lady that was on the production team of the show. She was part of the, the production of the show. She was getting things together. And there was a moment where we got to stand backstage. BBD's there. You know, fans are there. Um, you have uh, Brooke Payne is there. All these, you know, stars are there. And I'm watching this young lady operate in her calling, just kind of moving things along. And there was nothing in me that was saying, why is she around all these sinners? There was nothing in me that said she should pull out her Bible right now and do a Bible study. But everything in me was rejoicing that a believer had close proximity to people that have influence in the culture. And my hope for her is that she would remain faithful to Jesus in that context so that she could get an opportunity to share the gospel. I don't get it. I don't understand churches that say, listen, now that you believe in Jesus, I should pluck you out of where you do life and do life just amongst us. No, get in here on Sunday mornings, get in with your small groups and with your DNAs, but I need you to scatter to get back in the world. And we scatter to get back in the world. Why? Because Peter calls us sojourns and exiles. He's not saying, he's not calling us hermits. He's not saying disconnect from the culture. No, he's saying, listen, don't isolate yourself engage it, be a part of it. But you can do that without letting down a standard. Reality is some of you are too deep to engage the culture. I'm just going to be honest with you. Nobody's going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're too deep to engage the culture. Peter's not saying pull out your Bibles. Now I'm saying, yes, there's room for that. But I would love to see us build relationships with non-believers to a point where we've gained some relationship with them so that when we share the gospel, it holds more weight especially here in New York. You try to share the gospel with people that you ain't got relationship with, they'll look at you like you're crazy. But it works best when you got a relationship with somebody, when you're doing life with them, when you're hurting with them because they hurt, when you're rejoicing with them because they're rejoicing, and then you get an opportunity. What is it about you? What is it? Why are you always happy even in the midst of hardship? Why are you able to have joy? And then you can say, well, let me tell you why. And you slip Jesus right on in there. Peter is very clear. Listen, you're sojourners, you're exiles, you're not hermits. Jesus picks this up in Matthew 5. He says, you're salt and light. That's what we are. And we should, we should be salt and light even in the world. And so Peter's going to give us two ways to practically live this life, not being isolated. The first is that we fight. The second is that we live faithfully. Both are found in the text. I'm not making both of these up. These are straight from the text. First, we fight. Let's look at it. Verse number 11. It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, here's the fight, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. As sojourners and exiles, we strive to abstain, but our abstination is abstination from sinful paths that our culture presents. No doubt the culture does present many, many different sinful desires. But as believers, as those who have trusted in Jesus, as those who have been called by the Lord, we should be men and women that engage the culture. But at the same time, we're abstaining from the sinful desires of the culture. But many of you fall just because you're simply abstaining. Peter doesn't just say abstain. Look back at the verse. Peter says in the verse, He says in verse number 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Here's the second thing, which wage war against your soul. 
Many of you fall because all you're doing is abstaining from the passions and the, of the flesh, but you're not waging war. You're not in the ring. You're not fighting. You're saying, I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do this. But when you're home, when you are thinking and you're looking at Facebook and you're on Instagram, are you fighting? Here's what I know about what Peter is saying. He's saying wage war against the flesh because you better believe the flesh is waging war against you. Flesh is absolutely waging war. There's certain things I can't watch. There are certain conversations I can't entertain. There are certain places that I can't go. I don't know how a believer that has trusted Jesus can go anywhere, can entertain any conversation, can be a part of, can watch any type of video. No, we must abstain not from the world, but from the passions of our flesh, which wage war against us. This is how Peter would have said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. I love this verse. This is how, uh, how Paul would have said it. He says, I discipline my body to keep it under control. How's, now, the NIV version says it even better. The NIV version says, I strike blows to my body in order to make it my slave. Our problem as believers is we want to strike blows to other, other people's body. We want to tell you what you shouldn't be doing, yet we let our sinful desires run free. Peter is saying this morning, no. You should wage war because the flesh is waging war against you. You should wage war against the flesh. And all of us in this room, as I'm talking, you have that one thing in your mind that you haven't been fighting. You've been abstaining, but you haven't been fighting. I think it behooves us this morning to define what passions of the flesh are. Because if we just think passions of the flesh, we could make up anything in our, in our minds. But the scriptures actually define for us passions of the flesh. Now, Peter doesn't, but if you jump over to Paul's words in Galatians 5, he absolutely does. Here's 15 things, 15 passions of the flesh. And there's something about this list that struck me. I've read this many times, but this week it struck me. Here's the passions of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, Division, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Here's the interesting thing about the passions of the flesh. The list that I just read to you, only three of them are actually physical sins. Only three. Think of this. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, and orgies. That's the passions of the flesh that's physical. The rest of these are all internal. And so the war that you're waging can't just be behavioral only. You can't just be abstaining from behavior only. But our abstination and our waging war must be against our own mind. As my pastor would say, it must be against your own stinking thinking. What we do is we say, man, I'm waging war. I'm in the ring because I'm not doing this and because I stopped doing this behavior. When reality is, Paul gives us a list of 15 and only three of them are physical. The rest of them are emotional. So when you're home by yourself, are you waging war against what you are thinking? Are you waging war against what's in your heart? Did you fall because her skirt was short and because her cleavage was showing? Or did you fall because there's unengaged sin in your own heart? Peter deals with us this morning. He says, listen, wage war against the passions of the flesh. But if you think that waging war simply means behavioral modification, you've missed it. You've, you've lost the fight. Waging war is not only behavior. Waging war, it means you have to internally, internally wage war against the things that constantly beat you up. I'll tell you this. Every day, there's a battle. Every day, you should wake up. You should say, what am I wearing? What am I eating for breakfast? What, what sins do I got to wage against? 
every single morning. Why? Because the morning that you don't do that, the flesh never takes a break. Bishop Kenneth H. Bowles, late Bishop Kenneth H. Bowles said, you can't do nothing with your flesh but make it behave. That's all you can do. You got to beat your flesh to make it behave. And that's what Paul says when he says, I beat my flesh. And so the first thing that Peter introduces us to in verse 11 is the fact that as you're living in the culture, not being isolated from the culture, but living in the culture, he says, you must fight. Fight what? Not each other. Don't fight the world. Fight your own internal issues. Peter doesn't present the sin that they're in as something that is external that the world is doing for them. No, he's saying, no, it's you. So the first is that we fight. Here's the second. Live faithfully. Verse 12. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we live faithfully amongst non-believers, we should anticipate positive results. Now, some of you can just be out with your friends, and the main one turning up is the believer. <laughs> Everybody else is like, no, calm down. No, don't, don't do that. But you're the main one turning up. No, we should, we should stop causing ourselves to put on the carnality of our friends and start to call our friends. And I'm not saying don't be amongst unbelievers. No, have friends with unbelievers, but call them up to put on your Jesus. Don't lower your standards for them. And so Peter says, he says, yes, fight the the passions of your flesh, but also live faithfully. Look at what he says. Keep your conduct amongst Gentiles honorable. He doesn't say don't be amongst Gentiles. When he's talking about Gentiles, he's talking about unbelievers. He's not saying don't be among them. He's saying be among them, but let your conduct be honorable when you are among them. Peter assumes here also in verse number 12 that you will be talked about. Notice what he says here. So when they speak against you, that I was searching for another translation that said if they speak against you, I could not find it. When they speak against you, you should expect it. And the, and the, the, the real the, the weapon of choice for non-believers against believers is always slander. Always. When they want to assassinate your character, they assassinate your character by slander. How do I know that? Because Peter clearly says when they speak against you, you should expect it. Don't be confused by it. You should expect it. But even though you expect, expect it, you should live faithfully. So what am I saying? When they do slander you. Because some of the slander that non-believers say against you isn't actually slander. It's actually true. Come on, let's be real. Like, I know y'all look nice today, but let's be real. Some of the stuff that you heard about you secretly, you know, is true. But what Peter is saying is, even though they slander you, their slander, they shouldn't be able to bring up a valid accusation against you. They shouldn't be able to. Why? Because the text says, keep your conduct among them honorable. To the point where, like if any of you in this room, and I told my son this, my, my oldest son, we were sitting in the backyard, and we were just talking about character issues, and not just with him, but with myself, and we were just kind of bouncing back and forth. And one of the things I was telling my son is, man, your character is so important, and your reputation of having good character is so important that when people from the outside hear stuff against you, they should say, that ain't true because I know him. Like if somebody came up to one of you and said, I saw a pastor be coming out of a strip club. My hope is that you would be like, that ain't true. <laughs> Even though you, you didn't know, you don't know if I was there. There's no real witnesses. You should be able to say, nah, I don't think so. 
I don't believe that. Not based on the fact that you know the truth, but based on the fact that you know my character. Keep your conduct amongst Gentiles as honorable is what the scripture says. And this word honorable is an interesting one. I told you to circle it for, for a purpose. The word honorable here, the Greek behind it is a Greek word called kalos. It, it literally means beautiful, attractive, or desirable. In other words, Peter is saying, if I just replace the word honorable with the original Greek language and just use a word like attractive, this is how the text really reads. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles attractive. In other words, people should be attracted, non-believers, Gentiles, non-believers should be attracted to your life. They should be able to see something about you. Remember when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. There was enough in Paul for people to follow him. Is there enough in you for people to follow you? And so Peter lifts it up today. He says, listen, keep your conduct amongst them attractive. Keep it desirable. Christian life isn't just about law keeping. Christian life should be about attracting those that don't know Jesus to know Jesus purely based on the fact that you're living faithfully. He says, fight your passions, but live faithfully, live honorably. So when you're at a restaurant, the, the, this term Kahlo should show up somewhere. Is the, is the waiter or the server there solely, her sole purpose in life is to serve you? Or should you treat her like she's of value as well? Kalos, live attractive lives. Not to mention, we should be the biggest tippers, Christian. Why? Because Christ died for you when you shouldn't have been died for. This person that's serving you and bringing you your burger and fries is a person that has value. How about you live an attractive, desirable life? You engage her. You ask her questions. You say thank you. Like she brought your food out. You say thank you. Something so simple. And Peter is saying that to us today. And, and this idea of living an attractive life shouldn't be forced. It should be natural. It should be a natural response for the, for the person that knows that they deserve eternal punishment separated from God. You've been graced with Jesus Christ dying on your behalf. That person should extend that grace to other people. And it shouldn't be forced. In fact, I quickly want to read it. Jesus deals with it in the parable, not the parable, when he's talking about separating. I don't know if you know the story in Matthew 25. If you're taking notes, read it. He separates the goats and the sheeps, the sheep. When he separates them, he does the sheeps, whatever. <laughs> Y'all like sheeps. Y'all writing it down. When he separates them, now in this story, it's interesting because the goats represents non-believers. And the sheep that he's talking about here that he divides and puts on his right, it represents the day of judgment when he separates non-believers from believers. And when he separates them, there's something interesting that happens in Matthew 25. They are living beautiful, attractive lives. And listen to me, it's not forced. They don't even know they're living beautiful, attractive lives. How do I know it? This is what the text says. It says, when the son of man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then they will sit on his glorious, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate the people from one another. As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Bible says that he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen to this. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. Here's Kylos. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. 
When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me in prison and you came to see me. Now here's how you know it wasn't forced. Watch the reaction of the sheep that's on the right. Watch their reaction in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? In other words, they were living beautiful, attractive lives. They were living honorable amongst Gentiles and didn't even know they were. To the point where the scripture goes on and says, the king will answer them and say, truly, I say to you, as you've done to the least of my brothers, you did to me. And so we should live lives that, yes, fight against the passions of our flesh, but we should also live lives that are attractive and desirable and people want to actually follow you. They didn't even know they were performing these acts of kindness. Let's keep going back to first Peter. Verse. Thirteen. Be subject. This is, this is going to be a tough one. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Here's where it gets tough. Whether to the emperor or the president as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Basically, what he's saying is, although your ultimate allegiance is to God, there should be enough submissiveness in you while living on this earth that you submit to the ruling authorities on this earth. Now, I know that's hard. I know you're like, nah. That doesn't sound too easy. Like I'm looking at CNN, I'm looking at the news and, you know, it don't sound like I really should be submitting there. But submitting here, really, what, what he's not saying is be silent. He's saying submit. And yes, you can speak up against perverted justice, but at the same time, you should submit. Yes, he starts with the, the emperor as supreme, but he goes down to lesser authorities what do I mean lesser authority? He's also talking about judges and commissioners and police officers. And he's talking about parking attendants. You mean to tell me I got to pay my tickets? Peter says submit even to the, the lesser governors. The, submit to even local authorities. Don't just submit to the highest authority, but submit to all authorities. And, and this simply means that you have to live life in a way that you do simple things like don't cheat on your taxes. He's saying, listen, remember, Jesus says this, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You give to Rome what's Rome. Basically, what he's saying is live your life in a way that, yes, it's attractive. But when you do need to speak up against injustice, you've paid your taxes so you can speak up faithfully. See, some of us are trying to speak up and we can't do it. Now, we say I can't submit if I can just be real in here. We'll say things like I can't submit to the current administration because of the corruption. However, Paul, uh, Peter, when he wrote this, we act like Peter wrote this in a time where the ruling authorities were like godly men. This was Rome that they were submitting to. He's talking about the Roman emperor. I don't know if you know, this, this letter was written somewhere between 60 and 65 AD after the death of Christ. And this if you know who was in charge at this time, it was the emperor Nero. Now, Nero was not, I mean... Donald Trump pales into comparison to Nero. Like Nero, anybody that was, that was an obstacle in the emperor's way, he would literally X out, including his wife, his mother, and his brother-in-law. He X'd them all out. Why? Because the history shows that. Why? Because they were in his way. And so when we think of this idea of say, I can't submit, like 
Peter doesn't know. He didn't know that in 2017, those that were in charge would be corrupt, not just the, the current administration, but there'd be corruption in police departments. And he didn't know. Clearly, he didn't know that. Listen, there was corruption then. But yet, Paul, not Peter says, submit. Submit to who? Submit to the emperor. Submit to Emperor Nero. Now, to go a step further with how wicked this emperor was, he would torture and kill Christians. And he would do that by crucifixion. But it wasn't the crucifi crucifixion that we see with Jesus. See, Jesus died they pierced him in his side. They took him off. They put him in the tomb. The emperor Nero took it a step further. He would crucify them. And then for the nightly festivities, he would burn their body and their bodies, Christians, their bodies would provide the illumination for the nightly festivals. This is the emperor. He would take the skin of animals and he would put them on to Christians and he would put them in the midst of a pack of wild dogs and let the wild dogs eat Christians. This is who Peter is saying submit to. But again, submission that he's talking about here does not mean silence. As Christians, I wouldn't say we should speak up against injustice. I would say we have an obligation to speak up against injustice. Those that are oppressed, we should speak up for them. And so Peter says it here. He says, listen, submit. But I'll go so far as to say submit, but that doesn't mean silent. A few weeks ago, we had Bible study here in this room and we were doing Bible study. We were talking about, we've been going through all of the Bible. And we got to the place where the kings are now introduced in the Old Testament. And when we saw the kings introduced, that the Bible says that the elders of Israel come to Samuel because Samuel puts in the place to judge Israel. He puts his two sons in place, Joel and Abijah. And when he puts his sons into place, the Bible says that Israel rejected them for two reasons. Israel rejected them because they took bribes. But the second reason that Israel rejected them was because they perverted justice. They were not able to lead Israel because, they, because the elders in Israel said they pervert justice. They can't lead us. What am I saying? Listen, I'm saying submit, but speak up as well. Put action around social justice issues. And I'm not trying to make this, this sermon political, but I am trying to say I think the church has been too silent on social issues. Too silent on social issues. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians from German, said it well. He said, not to speak is to speak. So we want to be silent and say, nah, they'll get that thing together. No, the church has to be engaged. You have to be present. And I'm not just saying speak up, but actually put action around it. And so human governors are supposed to do two things. He says, submit to the emperor, but also submit to the governors in which the emperor sins. There's two things. There's two reasons the text presents that they should submit. Here's why. Because the governors, verse, I'm in uh, verse 14. Here's what the governors are supposed to do. To governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That is what our governors, our ruling governors are supposed to do. They're supposed to punish evil and they're supposed to reward good. Paul also picks it up. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I love that. For those that exist have, inst have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For the rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. Here it is again. Would you have no fear that the one who is in authority, then do what is good. 
and you will be and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. That's the only thing our ruling governors are supposed to do, our human governors are supposed to do. The two things they're supposed to do is to reward those that are good and to punish evil. Unfortunately, the corruption in our United States have flipped that upside down. We actually reward the one who does bad, and we actually... Condemn the one that does good. The kid walking to the store with a hoodie on and Skittles in his pocket, we condemn him. But listen, the scripture says the governors, the ruling authorities should do two things. They should reward those that do good and they should, do, they should uh, pour out God's wrath really on the one that does bad. Now, here's why you can submit. Here's the reason I did not move to Canada after Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> here's the reason. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. The reason that you and I can submit to human authorities is for the Lord's sake. If you cannot do it because you do not like the one that was elected, not just president, but the local authorities here in Brooklyn, you should submit for the Lord's sake. And that's why Peter says that we should do it. I should keep going because I don't have a lot of time. Verse 15. For this sake, I'm sorry, for this is the will of God. Here's Kylos again. That by doing good, you should put to silence ignorance. And foolish people, the ignorance of foolish people. Again, again, Peter here goes back to this idea of doing good, living faithfully, even in the midst of corruption, even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of hardship. Peter says, no, you, st- you still should live faithfully. And he summarizes why we should live faithfully in this verse. Verse 15 says we should live faithfully for this one reason, to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's a life principle here in verse 15. And that life principle is when those who do wrong against you, you don't have to do wrong against them. To the contrary, we should do good. We should do good to the one that does us wrong. Here's how Proverbs 15, uh, Proverbs 25 would say it. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink for you will heap burning coals against his head. I don't have to get you back because you got me. All I have to do is live faithfully to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When I was in college, I went to a school called Philadelphia Biblical University. When I graduated, it was called Karen University. And when I was there, there was one professor, I'll, I'll, I'll leave nameless, I will say a very brilliant Bible teacher. However, I was very clear that he did not like me. And I actually had him in two classes. I mean, an amazing teacher, but both classes, he, he tried to fail me for the dumbest reasons. One, we were doing, we were tracking Paul's missionary, first missionary journey, and we were supposed to partner up with, um, with people in the class, and I partnered up with this one young lady, and he accused me of cheating, even though I wasn't cheating. Tried to fail me, took me all the way to the dean's office. Tried to fail me for it, ended up not failing me, he couldn't prove it, I didn't cheat, and so we moved on with the class. I had him in another class, I was like, I'm just not going to go well. Well, sure enough, it didn't go well for that one either. In that class, I quoted my citations at the bottom of the page, and he said I didn't quote them right. Therefore, I was plagiarizing. The reason I'm bringing this up is this is somebody that over and over again tried to fail me. Here's the interesting thing. The month before I graduated, he got a promotion as the dean of the program. Now, before, before you think that you know, this story goes left, it actually, it actually proves the faithfulness of God. Here's why. Because even though he was the dean of the program, I had a month left. All the classes were done. 
I was done with it. There is no way he could fail me now because I've already cleared all my classes. All he has to do now is sign off on it. My degree is sitting in my house with the, with the name signed by the person that tried to fail me twice. And failing me twice, get this, I would not have graduated if I failed one of those classes. I needed every single credit, and I wouldn't have graduated. So when I walked across the stage, guess who was there to meet me and give me my diploma? That professor. And I hit him with one of these, and you know, that little sinfulness inside of me, I had to, I had to hit him with something, get him back. But the, the dean of the program, the one that tried to fail me is the one. I didn't say, I didn't get him back. I simply did what this verse says, do good to those who do wrong to you. Just live faithfully. And living faithfully, at some point, the ones that are doing you wrong are the ones that's going to give you your diploma, the ones that's going to help you to get to the next place in your life. So hear me, hear me very, very clearly. You do not have to do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Believers don't do that. What we do is we do good, even when people do us wrong. Even when people slander us, we don't get them back on Facebook. We just continue to live faithfully. Wage war against the passions of your flesh, but also live faithfully. Let's keep going because I don't have a lot of time. I'm run over by a couple minutes here. Verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants to God. Again, he's just, he's pounding us today with how we live. He's pounding us today with our behavior. And Peter's concern right now is for their freedom. And, And hear me, Epiphany Church. Don't while out in sin and call it freedom. That's not freedom. You're still enslaved. But we, even freedom has boundaries. You're free in this room. None of you are incarcerated in this room. But if you go out and do a 50 and a 25, you'll get a ticket. What am I saying? Even though there's rules and even though you're, you're free, you're still held back by certain rules. It's the same way in Christianity. Yes, you're free. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, Christ set you free to be free. But that freedom doesn't mean that I should go out and do whatever I want. No, I still have to live under the guidelines of Christianity. I'm going to end right here. Verse 17. I love verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is interesting because Peter In verse 13 and 14, when he gave us an ascending list, he started with the emperor. Verse 17, he ends with the emperor. He doesn't start with the emperor. And, and, you know, a few sermons ago in 1 Peter, I put on my professorial hat and I I told you guys what a chiastic structure is. Anybody remember that? Chiastic structure is when two or more thoughts are presented in a text. To know what the dominating thought of that text is, we must look at the structure of the text. So in other words, if thought A is presented and thought B is presented, in order to find out which one is the dominating thought, we have to look at not which one occurs the most, but which one is in the middle. So a chiastic structure is thought A is presented. Stay with me. I told you, man, that degree that I got, I'm trying to exercise it now. (laughs) Thought A presented Thought B is presented. If thought B is presented again and then thought A, the dominating thought, let's see who remembers, is which one? B. It's always the chiastic structure says the book and statements are not the dominating thought. I told you guys, you know, the common saying when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Presented in that thought is going and tough. But the idea is not the focus is not on going anywhere. The idea and the focus is on how tough you are. Why? Because Going is at the beginning. When the going gets tough, 
the tough gets going. The main thought of that thought that of that saying is tough. A chiastic structure for the second time in our letter is presented here in 17. Honor everyone. Now, what's the last book and statement? Honor the emperor. What's in the middle? Love the brotherhood. Fear God. What's interesting about this chiastic structure, though, is that the honor that is at the bookend statements are honoring the world. Notice what it says. Honor everyone. That's not believers. That's not just believers. That's everybody. So honor everyone. And then he ends by saying, honor the emperor. The main focus of the text is not by honoring the world. The main focus of the text is in the middle. Fear God. Love the brotherhood. That has nothing to do with the outside. Everything to do with here. Here's where I want to end. As we talk about stop trying to fit in, when we look at this chiastic structure, the problem with us is we're not honoring everyone and honoring the emperor. We're trying to fit into that world. When the focus of the text is loving God and living, fearing God and loving the brotherhood, that is the focus of the text. Many of you in this room have had a hard time all of your life trying to fit in. And can I suggest to you that you trying to fit in is probably you still resting out on those bookend statements. You're not honoring. You're you're trying to invade. You're trying to engage. You're trying to be a part of the world when the scripture is clear. The focus is on fearing God and loving his body. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No altar call today. Everybody's on the altar today. And here's the the reason why everybody is on the altar today. Because I am convinced that every one of us in this room have tried to fit into places that we shouldn't have fit into. Christ has died so that you could fit in to a relationship with God. And because you can fit in now to a relationship with God, those of you who have trusted Jesus, you now fit into his body. Now, that doesn't mean it's, everything's always going to be perfect. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have issues within the body. Listen, there's mess within the body. Anytime you bring a bunch of sin, sinful people together, there's bound to be mess. But that doesn't mean we should try to fit into the world. Epiphany Church, listen, you look cool today. Amen. But here's what I also know. That sometimes we can do, we can dress ourselves up in a certain way. We can say certain things that we never naturally would say, but we'll do it just so we can fit in. Reality is I know that some of you have switched up even your language of how you communicate to fit into certain places. Like, I want you to rhetorically think about that. Don't answer this, but rhetorically just answer this in your mind. Think of how many times you get around different people and you always switch up the conversation, end up talking like they talk, having the same language that they have. Reality is we should be calling people to live like us. Father, I want to pray for everybody in this room, everyone that's serving, everyone that's playing, everyone that's singing. All the way to the kids room, those that are serving to the babies. I pray, Lord that you would help us to realize that we don't fit in. We do not fit into the world, but you've wired us and made us to fit into your body. We've pushed against it. We've pushed against your body. We've pushed against you by pushing against the body. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to fit in. Some of us have had a hard time even fitting into the local church. 
And the reality is we've had a hard time, but have we really pursued community? Father, I pray that you would convict us today, that you would forgive us for moments where we tried to fit into places that we should not. And in the weeks to come, when those moments pop up and we try to make everybody happy by fitting in, would you remind us of the fact that we're supposed to honor them but not fit in with them? Help us today, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. Give us boldness to live. Over and over again, you've presented this idea of living beautifully and and fighting our, our passions. Help us, Lord. We need Holy Ghost help. We cannot do this on our own. We need the Spirit to move through our lives. So, Father, I pray for every one of us in this room that you would build us up to look more like you. Only let the manner of life be counted worthy of the gospel. May we not proclaim the gospel, but reject living it. Help us to live it amongst our non-believing friends. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.